Would you open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, please? Galatians chapter 5, again, verses 22 to 26. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. This is the Word of God. Whatever. I think I said it wrong. If you look at verse 25 there, you see how it begins. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And you know that if these things that are listed are the fruit of the Spirit, that that means that they're not things that we can produce on our own. And I want to make that as a, as a warning as we again turn to study love. Um, people have often wondered why I spend so much time talking about sexuality and things like abortion and euthanasia today. And I explained to them one of the reasons is that these are things that historically the church has been very, very clear on. But today people are wanting to be mushy on them. Uh, people find that when it comes to standing against a culture, it gets very difficult as Christians to do that. And, and so all of us, and, and I particularly as a pastor, I'm called to make sure that at the place where there's a break in the wall defending the city, that that's where you focus a lot of your effort. You have to go to the breach in the wall and focus your effort there. But the other reason is that I, I view these truths as very evangelistic truths, that if the world believes in abortion, if the world believes in uh, no authority in the marriage and in the home, that if we point to those things and study them, the contrast between the people of God and the people of the world, the contrast between God's truth and man's truth is very, very clear at those points. Because culture is focusing all its efforts to teach what is a lie. Well, then if we proclaim the Christian truth, that's a place where we all see we have a choice to make. It's very clear. Nobody can deny that that choice is in front of them. And so... As I say, I look at these truths as evangelistic truths. I don't look at them as something where, uh, you know, you hide them until people become Christians and then you trot them out and you say, now you didn't know it, but here's something else that you have to, like, sort of go along with. Now, there are things like, hey, guess what? Here is something that will make it clear to you the difference between God and the wisdom of this world. Isn't this priceless? And I've often said, for instance, on sexuality, because she's a public figure. Uh, let me point to this. Think of Chelsea Clinton, the president and his wife's daughter. And think, what is a more evangelistic truth? In other words, what is something that we can put in front of her that more clearly demonstrates the difference between this world and the kingdom of heaven than, than the teaching about the nature of fatherhood and motherhood? It's a wonderful truth. Now, why am I bringing that up on the fruit of the Spirit? Well, because when you get to the issue of love, again, the difference between what the world thinks of love and what God says about love is huge. And so I, I, I've told you often that back in, oh, it was like 1991 or 89, uh, I read in some magazine that every year... Um, they have a whole bunch of songs that are copyrighted. And this guy in New York City kept track of what the song titles were. And if I'm not mistaken, I, and I could be wrong by a factor of ten, but I'm quite convinced that there were something like 5,000-some songs that year copyrighted just that year with the word love in the title. Well, what is the world's love? You know, 
So if, as we study love again this morning, you see it and you think, oh my, this is something that's, that's, that's so far beyond me. This is something that is impossible. Then you've gotten the point. And this is an evangelistic truth. In other words, this is a truth that will cause us to despair of ourselves and to turn to Jesus Christ. The only person that can give us this love is the Holy Spirit working in behalf of God the Father. And so the point of studying love is not to discourage you, but to turn you to God and to have you plead with Him to give you this love. So often today we think that uh, evangelism should consist of announcing to people that, that really everything's much better than you think it is. And that's never been evangelism. Evangelism has always been, really, everything is much worse than you could ever imagine. But there is a Savior. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great uh, preacher of the Great Awakening, um, <laughs> he thought that the most encouraging doctrine that he could preach was the fall, original sin. Because it was a great leveler of men and women. If everybody comes to understand that we are really hopeless, then everybody's the same. Nobody's a little bit above anybody else. We're all flat under the cross. And only Jesus is glorified. And so here we have an example of the fruit of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. And the first of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And when it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit again. It's making it clear that the only people who have any hope of loving, really loving, not the kind of sappy, stupid baloney that the world thinks of as love. You know, Hallmark cards have a place. But I think we know how many people buy them to cover up the fact that there's absolutely no reality behind the words. I mean, isn't that the point of a card? You know, when you don't have anything you can say yourself, you buy some uh, card that comes out of Hallmark and, and hope that your wife won't realize that you don't have anything that you say yourself. Flowers. You know, there are a lot of ways we can cover up the absence of love in our relationship. But true love is the fruit of the Spirit. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And then, after love, come a bunch of indications of the presence of love. And this is why we're spending so long on love. Love can be the basket that holds all good things in our hearts. Now, what is love? Well, the definition of love uh, that is greatest in Scripture is the statement, greater love has no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friend. And so that immediately, to those of us who are Christians, it immediately turns us to Jesus Christ. Uh, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins, as a sin offering. And so Jesus Christ defines love. But to say love is Jesus, love is giving up your life, is not what we need. We need it to be fleshed out more than that. We obviously understand that no love can be greater than that. But what does love mean in our day-by-day life as a church, as families, as married couples, as roommates, as students, as teachers, as uh, workers in the shop? What is love to us? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a definition. Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, last week, we looked at the fact that love uh, is kind. The one who is kind is good-natured and long-suffering. A kind person has regard for others that places them ahead of ourselves. 
Um, we looked at the seven things that love is not. The love is not jealous. It doesn't envy. Um, it doesn't resent it when others possess something that we want and don't have. Love does not brag. It, it, it doesn't envy, but it also doesn't boast. It doesn't say, this is, this is what I have that you don't have. It doesn't like to point that out. It's not arrogant and proud. It, it, the proud man loves no one but himself. But in Scripture, pride is never associated with any spiritual good, and God hates pride. It says in James 4, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Love does not act unbecomingly. It's not rude. Rudeness is contempt for the feelings of others. Love is not rude. It does not seek its own. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't place itself first, but places others ahead of self. And in some ways, this is a recapitulation of everything that has been said before. It's summing it up. Love is not provoked. Uh, some of the translations say easily angered or easily provoked. It would be nice if that's what it is, but it's not. It's, just, it's simply not provoked. Um, it's not angered. If your life is characterized by anger, and anger is a thing you're having frequently to deal with, uh, your love is lacking. Uh, Barnes, a commentator on Scripture, says this. He says, if we're under the influence of benevolence or love to anyone, we shall not give way to sudden bursts of feeling. We shall look kindly on his actions, put the best construction on his motives. We shall deem it possible that we've mistaken the nature or the reasons of his conduct. We shall seek or desire explanation and wait till we can look at the case in all its bearings and suppose it possible that he may be influenced by good motives and that his conduct will eventually have a satisfactory explanation. Anger in a family is, is hard to bear. I remember when uh, Dr. and Mrs. Knighton came through our wedding reception line right after we were married. And uh, I don't remember almost anybody from that line, what they said, the gifts they gave to us or anything. But for some reason, the Knightons really stand out. They started medical assistance programs where uh, obsolete medical equipment and drugs are sent overseas. And he used to be with Christian Medical Society. Anyhow, as they came through, I remember them giving us a bunch of towels that I do we still use those towels? So they're gone took many years, didn't it? I remember second that they said, if you ever have any problem at all, give us a call day or night and we'll help. And then the thing I most remember is that they looked at us and very intently they said, don't ever let the sun go down on your wrath. And boy, that stuck out to me. Well, you think of uh, some of our marriages and some of our homes and you think of some of our relationships in this church and when it says love is not provoked, it is amazing how much provoked we are. And I can't see into your, your heart. I don't know what provokes you, but, but I know you do get provoked. And this is the reason Jesus knew us. And this is the reason Jesus said, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Well, when we put money in the offering plate, um, we shouldn't think that Jesus is just speaking figuratively. Um, when we bring an offering to God, that offering should not come with hatred in our hearts and anger towards people in this church. And that includes your wife or husband sitting next to you, your brother or your sister. Um, Jesus is always speaking uh, things he means. He never says things he doesn't mean. And so there should be times where middle of a service, I see people getting up and leaving with somebody and saying, I need to talk to you. And by the way, the way to get things right between you and, and your brother or your sister is to start by confessing your sin and asking for forgiveness. It's not to like start thumping them in the chest with your finger. Um, I remember one time when we took time in a service to do this and my wife uh, told me about how somebody came up to her and confessed their anger, but in a way that all Mary Lee could do was say, either say she had been wrong or 
just be silent. And she still didn't think she was wrong in, in, in the warning that she had given this person. So it was a very awkward situation. Um, in other words, confession should not be an opportunity to uh, vent your wrath against someone. We should start out with meekness and confession. In our elders meeting this week, I did something that was wrong. Afterwards, as soon as the, the elders meeting was adjourned, one of the elders came up to me and said, can I have a word with you? Took me into a bedroom and said, brother, I was very offended that you did such and such. And we all have a choice. We can either get angry or we can say, that was wrong and I'm sorry. And... Well, we'll get into this more later. Love is not provoked. If somebody comes to you, you need to have a tender conscience. We all know that any good marriage is filled with forgiveness day by day, right? Well, how much more a church? Seven, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs, but rather a record of rights. The person who remembers the evil that was done yesterday and the day before and two months ago and a year ago, the person who gunny sacks is a person who has not yet learned to love. Love keeps no record of wrong. You remember Jesus on the cross. Think of everything he had suffered. I mean, every indignity that could be done to a man had been done to Jesus. But what did Jesus say on the cross? Huh? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you'd been on the cross there, do you think that you would have thought about the people doing it? Well, they don't know what they're doing. No, usually when we look at what people are doing to us, it hurts. We're convinced that they have a deeper understanding of what they're doing than they probably usually do. <laughs> they know how weak I am in this area, and then they go and point out my failures. Well, they probably don't know how weak you are in that area. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Micah 7.18, it says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possessions? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. One of the precious verses to me is where it says in James that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord who provides bountifully and... Come on, what does it say next? You must not pray and ask God for wisdom if you don't know what comes next, because that's what I cling to when I ask for wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who provides bountifully and without finding fault. Love does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And God does not keep track of our sins. He pardons iniquity. He passes over the rebellious act. He does not retain his anger. He delights in unchanging love. And then finally, in verse 7, we come to what the great... Uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon called the four labors or the four works of love. The section is summed up with these statements. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. Now, the first work of love, love bears all things. The word bear, Paul uses here, means to cover. Love covers all. That would be another possible translation. Now, what is it that love covers? Well, love covers offenses. It covers injuries. It covers sin. It covers these things from the view of others, and sometimes it covers them from ourself. You know that the Bible says that a godly giver doesn't let his right hand know what his left hand is doing. Sometimes that means that husbands and wives should hide their giving from each other. As long as your giving is not to gambling or something like that. Um, well, when it comes to love 
covering all things, there are times where we should cultivate our ability to hide the failures and the nakedness of others even from ourselves. In other words, there are times where when you live with a woman and you see her failures and her sins, you should cultivate your ability not to think about it. Not to dwell on it. To turn your mind someplace else. All right, that makes sense, right? But boy, we love to nurse our grudges, don't we? This is sweet and tender. Like a piece of steak. You just chew and chew and chew and more juice comes out. But the Bible says that love covers. I used the example last week that I will use again this week, even though it's repetition. And that is, you think of Noah, naked in his tent. We don't quite understand what was going on there, but it was sexually naked, whatever it was. One son goes in and does what? He goes out, hey, 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 hey Tim, guess, guess what I saw? Dad's, <laughs> he's in there in the tent, you know, he's naked. And the other two sons did what? They took a big quilt or a big blanket. They went to the door of the tent and they held it behind them and they backed in and they covered the nakedness of their father. The entire psycho, psychotherapy movement is a movement that if we will expose and expose and expose nakedness, that it will help us get better. Now, Please, inevitably, when I say something like that, I have some of you say, you didn't qualify what you said. All right, I'm going to qualify what I said. All right. It doesn't mean that there's no good to having counselors. It doesn't mean that there's no value to having a degree in counseling. It doesn't mean that people with PhDs in psychology or uh, who are medical doctors in psychiatry can't help us. I myself have been helped by somebody with a doctorate in psychology. Uh, I think that our marriage would not have survived our first year had I not gone and gotten counseling. But nevertheless, I come back and say, the whole psychotherapy movement is a movement that's largely built on the concept that if we will expose nakedness, that somehow we will be healed. And think, for instance, of how many, many people spend many, many years talking about how much their father and their mother hurt them. Think of how many uh, Bible studies consist of women talking on and on and on about what jerks their husbands are. Now, you want me to say that at men's Bible studies they do the same thing, and the fact is they don't. Now, that doesn't mean men are better than women, but that's one thing generally men don't do. They don't get together and talk about how bad their wives are. But women do have a temptation to do that. Now, what do men do? Well, men do have a lot of nasty things to say about the government. Rush Limbaugh doesn't live off women. <laughs> okay? So men do have the habit also of exposing nakedness and, and, and talking about it. It just tends to be slightly different. But the Bible tells us that love covers things. Love covers things. How do you cover things in your marriage and in your home? How do you cover the failures of your roommates? Think of a roommate who never, ever, ever does the dishes. Never. Never picks up the clothes. How do you cover that nakedness? Or do you make a principle that you're going to fight it until it dies? The Bible tells us that love bears all things, that it covers them, that it covers offenses. I'll use this twice in our sermon this morning. This is the first time. Those of you who are married, what did you say in your marriage ceremony? I take you to be my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward what did you say? For better. For richer. In health. Now you said for better, for worse. 
for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death separates us according to God's holy ordinance. And to this I guarantee my faithfulness. And this is the love that God has for us. You know, you think about it when our first father, Adam, was in the garden and he sinned, he rebelled, he did what he was told not to do. What did God do? God said, well, for all time, I'm going to hold you up as the principal fool. And there's no hope for you. I told you, you die, you're going to die. Well, God did rebuke him, but then God said what? That there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so we know that in the garden, God had already put in place the plan that would take unlovable enemies of his, like us, like Adam, and would redeem us. While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. And so God's in the business of covering our failures. How can we not cover our husbands and our wives and our roommates and our children's failures? There's a text that I'm very, very fond of in this connection, and it's Ezekiel 16, where God is speaking to his people and he's trying to help us to understand that It wasn't because we were a big people, a a smart people, a good-looking people. It wasn't because our nation was larger than other nations. It wasn't because we were cute that He chose us. But it says this, it says, As for your birth, on the day you were born, God speaking to His his children, He says, On the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped with clothes. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. And I think that's just a beautiful picture of us. You know? Some of you have had the privilege of seeing a birth. And I make a lot of jokes about husbands shouldn't have to be there, but Jimmy, you need to be there. Um, Why? Because you'll never understand this wonderful text of Scripture until you've seen a baby born. And you see that little baby with the umbilical cord attached and you see the blood and the mucus and everything that indicates the humanity of our condition. I remember reading shortly after the birth of my first child, uh, Lucretius, who says that uh, mingled in with the cries of the newborn is the dirge of the dead. And I thought, isn't that true? How could you have something that's more like death than birth? They're almost the same thing. And what does a husband think when he sees his wife give birth and the pain and the labor that goes into it? Well, what he thinks is, this is a type of life. You know, we're here dressed this morning, real clean, acting nice, smiling, taking breath mints to cover the coffee. You know, but what are we? Well, in the old uh, prayer book service at the graveside, it says, In the midst of life, we live in death. And of whom may we seek relief, O Lord, but of thee who, for our sins, art justly displeased. And that's the best of our condition. You know, I watch the presidents as each man comes into office and then leaves. And I, I ask myself, Who in their right mind would run for President of the United States? Because you can see so clearly what happens to them bearing the weight of this country. And that's a type of what happens to all of us. No woman goes through childbearing and remains the same afterwards. Her body changes, her hormones change, her emotions change, her marriage changes. Um, everything changes. Love that's modeled after the love of God does not say, well, that's a cute baby. You know, love doesn't wait until that baby's been picked up, the umbilical cord has been cut and tied, and the baby's washed, and nice little dainty things put on the baby, and little 
skull cap, you know, and and then God says, well, now, now I think you're presentable. And I think I'll take you to myself now. 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 God tells us that he came and picked us up when we were lying there with the umbilical cord uncut and squirming in the blood. And that's when he loved us. It says, you were naked and bare, and I passed by you and I saw you. Again, Ezekiel 16, and behold, you were at the time for love. And so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. And I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. And then I bathed you with water and I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. So what has God covered in you? What sins has he bathed away? He has turned his blind eye to so much in you and me. He is generous to the stingy. He's loving to the unloving. None of us will ever have to overlook in others one one thousandth, one one millionth of what he's overlooked in us. And so there is joy and power in following his example and loving others and bearing and covering all things in them. Love bears all things. Second, love believes all things. Now, this is a difficult one because if you read the book of Proverbs, one of the things that is most condemned in the book of Proverbs is being naive. The book of Proverbs never says that it's good for you to believe all things in the face of evil. And yet we recognize that when it says here, love believes all things, that that does mean believing in the face of evil. And so how do you balance these things? Well, this is true of so much of the spiritual life that we have to, on the one hand, recognize that the command of Scripture can be abused by acting as if there's no discernment needed. We, none of us like discernment. Uh, we really wish that we could get through life with the Holy Spirit turning us into robots, automatons, and, and not having to exercise the judgment that God has called us to. But we have to exercise judgment. We have to judge whether a text is literal or figurative. When Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, he rebuked his disciples for taking it literally. And so this means that some texts are to be taken figuratively, some literally. And when we take them literally, and they should be figurative, that God will rebuke us for it. And so it's just not always right to take it one way or the other. Well, it's the same is true with commands. When it says that love believes all things, this means that we should believe things when it's painful to believe them. Now, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that there are times where uh, your husband, for the 5,000th time, uh, has not bothered picking up his dirty clothes in the bedroom and you get up and you see all those clothes sitting there. He's off to work. And you think to yourself, I'll bet that he had an early appointment this morning and couldn't quite remember to pick up his clothes. It's a joke. But, you know, I don't know where you're supposed to believe all things, but it is when there are difficult things where you're sinned against, where someone is rude, where somebody is not kind to you. And precisely at that point, you are to believe the best about them. In regard to the conduct of others, Barnes says, there is a disposition to put the best construction on it. To believe that what caused them to do something is good motives and not bad ones. Now, it's always dangerous to tell stories from my life because I don't want you to hate me so that I can preach to you. But one of the things that I've seen in, in our marriage is, is the issue of food. Sometimes you'll explain to your wife that, you know, you like this and you don't like that. And so a few months go by and then all of a sudden something shows up on your plate. And you're thinking to yourself, did I not make myself clear? You know, 
Does not my sweetheart know I can't stand cauliflower with cheese on top of it? Um, and so you're sitting there seething, you know, thinking, you know, I don't know how else to make it clear. I thought I was clear. Um, and so afterwards, you go to her in the kitchen, and you say, lover, don't you remember I can't stand cauliflower? I didn't eat breakfast. I didn't eat lunch. I came to the table. I was hungry and I had cauliflower with cheese on top of it. And she says, well, my mother was here and I knew she liked it or something like that. And you go, oh, <laughs> you know, you're completely embarrassed because what? Because you were thinking only of yourself. Well, that's not the only fault. The other fault is. You didn't even bother trying to think of a reason why her motivation in doing what she did was godly. And that happens all the time. All the time. Leaders' lives are spent discovering that happening in marriages, in a church, in elders' meetings, in, 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 in relationships of people in the church. It happens all the time. We put the worst construction on something and then we're fully humiliated to find out that the person was motivated by love in what they did. So what do you do at that point? Well, you're so embarrassed that you look at her, I don't care whether your mother was here, I told you I don't like cauliflower with cheese. Love believes all things. Now, one comment. This does not mean that when one is faced with a professor who is standing up and making a mockery of Jesus Christ, that one sits there and thinks, well, undoubtedly some Christian hurt their feelings ten years ago, and so I should be sensitive and gentle with this professor and not bother speaking up in defense of Christ in front of all of these poor students. And do you understand? You have to know when to believe all things, and you have to know when to believe all things. And there are times to believe that what you're seeing is wickedness and it needs to be rebuked. Don't use this as an excuse to be a coward. All right. There are times that you're going to have to deal with sin. And, and Lucas and I have, have an ongoing debate about this. Where's Lucas? There he is. Don't we? Yes. And here's why. Lucas's principal gift is what? Y'all know him. What's his principal gift? Compassion or mercy. Actually, let me, let me just pull you out. Forget me. It's actually Lucas and David that have this battle. Because they live together. And David's... I don't know if it's his principle. I don't know him well enough yet. But David has quite the gift of discernment. Now, I'm not saying Lucas doesn't have discernment. And I am saying that David doesn't have compassion, but <laughs> no, I'm not. No, David has compassion. Um, and so what happens is you have compassion and discernment hit and they go, bam. What does compassion say to discernment? Compassion says to discernment, you don't have enough facts to make a judgment. Discernment says to compassion, you stupid idiot, what more do you need to know? And bam, they go. Now, of course, uh, they don't talk like that. Maybe they don't even think like that. But this is what happens. And so when we see that love believes all things, there should be the death of discernment at times because discernment can very easily tend to judge too quickly. But there should also be the death of compassion at times when that compassion would cause you to allow God's sheep to be dealt with in a way that, that, that they stumble. That's an evil thing. And Jesus said it would be better if a millstone is tied around their neck and they're thrown into the sea than to let that happen. So you have to learn to discern when covering is needed, when believing is needed, but also when speaking up against evil is needed. Love does believe all things, but it is not naive. Now, let me ask you briefly about believing all things. And the final one is love always hopes. Do you believe all things and do you hope about your loved ones, your neighbors, and those who don't know Jesus Christ? And I want to hit this one hard. Uh, Mary Lee and I, before we moved to Bloomington, served in a community that was rural. The town was 1500, and then our other church was out in the middle of the farmland. 
And one thing you learn about communities like that is they have very long memories. People will tell you who their grandfather and great-grandfather was. And people connect the character traits of their great-grandfather with their great-grandchild. And they have a box for you, and that box is based upon who your ancestors were, who your mother and father were, and they will not let you break out of that box. All right. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that God is in the business of making the old new. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not just a Bailey of the third generation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is what Scripture tells us. So, if love believes all things and hopes all things, my question for you is, do you... Hope all things about anybody that you know who is not a Christian? Do you hope anything about your professor, anything about your foreman, anything about your wife, your son, your daughter, your parents who aren't believers? Do you hope? And if not, why not? If you don't hope, it's because you don't believe in the power of God to change people. That's what it is. Liberals never stop believing in education. Now, I'm not against education. My kids are educated, all right, talk to them, you know, they'll understand you, they know words, they can read, but education is not the salvation, it is not, and a lot of what goes by the name of education is in fact indoctrination, education is not the solution, the solution is the power of God. The solution is, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you hope to see your family members change, your neighbors change, your boss change, the change is going to come through the power of God. Love hopes all things. If God took you up in your dirty and filthy and naked, bloody condition and gave you His covering of His robe, he made love to you through His Holy Spirit and gave you a new heart. He, his Father adopted you. You're the bride of Christ. If this is what God did with you, why do you have no hope for your loved ones? Why do you just have a callous attitude? How could God do this with you but not do this with them? Did God's power vanish once it got done with you? No, it didn't. Now, if we hope all things, how long will we hope all things? Remember Peter? He says, how, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? You know, you know, up to seven times seven. And Jesus said 70 times seven, infinity. If he comes to you and he confesses his sin, you forgive him. Love hopes all things. You know, it's very interesting when we look at these four duties of love. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes, and it endures all things. And we see that this is love. And we ask ourselves, what do we bear, what do we believe, what do we hope, and what do we endure? And I want to end with an application that um, probably is um, not something that would occur to you. But I want to turn from our relationships to each other to our relationship to God. And I want to ask you, do you love God? And because you love God, do you hope all things and do you endure all things? Now, what am I talking about? Because God doesn't sin against us. And so how could we endure God? We rejoice in God. We, get, we glory in God. We don't endure Him. Okay, come on now, be honest. The fact is, many of us cannot endure God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that God gives us things in our life that we are absolutely resentful and bitter and angry about. And we refuse to endure Him. If we're to love each other and the fruit of the Spirit is love, doesn't this apply to God? And if we are committed to loving our wife in sickness and in health, 
for poor and for richer. Are we not committed to loving God when he brings things into our life that causes bitterness and resentment? Why do you love God? Or maybe you refuse to love God. I remember talking to, uh, to one of the men who's the son of one of our former members and him saying, my divorce was so painful that I turned against God because no good being would ever cause anyone to go through the pain I went through. And so his heart was hard against God. He had no endurance of what God had sent into his life. A number of years ago, my uh, eldest brother, Joe, died. He was a student at Swarthmore, uh, National Merit Scholar, godly, had a full-ride scholarship to the school, and uh, was headed into the mission field. He wanted to be a linguist. And he went sledding on a Christmas afternoon, and he was a hemophiliac, and he fell off the sled, and he started hemorrhaging badly, and because he was... He was put into another hospital instead of Children's Memorial. And that hospital, despite being warned by our family doctor, they made serious, serious mistakes. And he ended up dying. Shortly after his death, my parents received a letter from a dear friend of our family's. And the letter said this, My morning reading yesterday fell in Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 10 came with fresh force where it says he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. There are times, she went on, we are tempted to say anything but that, Lord. And then he, God, must out of necessity say to us, anything but my holiness then. Is any price too great to pay if we may share his holiness? From my heart, I say, even the loss of Jim is not too great if he will allow me this. This is Elizabeth Elliot talking about the death of her husband, Jim Elliot, at the hands of the Aka Indians. She's the one writing the letter. She says, is any price too great to pay if we may share his holiness? From my heart, I say, even the loss of Jim is not too great if he will allow me this and I will have nothing less. And so I know you rest too in his will, which is forever good and acceptable and perfect. We had the privilege this last week of laying in the ground Andrew Myra. Andrew lived his life with no capacity that would cause any uh, materialist to desire him. He, he couldn't see. Um, he couldn't communicate, couldn't speak. Uh, he could hear. He took great delight in Christian music. Uh, he could smile, but he never saw his own smile. He was precisely the kind of child that 20 years ago, the Bloomington doctors and parents killed by not giving it the ability to eat. They wouldn't open its esophagus, and so it starved to death in our hospital, baby doubt. This was Andrew. Only that child was infinitely better condition than Andrew. When Andrew was born, Andrew's mother had God say to her, and you say, how did God say it? I don't know. God does say things to us. And God said to her, do you want my will? Do you want my will? And Jana said, what? Yes, I want your will. And so what? Jana and her husband endured the life of Andrew. Now, you may be offended at that. You may say, oh, they didn't endure it. It was joy. I say, oh, come on. When a child's 75 pounds and you're changing that child's diapers, you're going to tell me that's not enduring the will of God? Oh, yes, but he smiled and, and, and brought so much joy in them. And you're going to tell me that this joy wasn't the fruit of their love for God that caused them to endure the suffering of their son's life? They endured the suffering of their lives and their son's life. And from the ground, there blossomed red Life that will endless be. Now, I know that I've gone way over because I just forgot, I forgot completely about communion. I'm sorry. It's be, well, nah, now. 
So we're going to be late getting out of here today. But you know what Luther says? Luther says, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. (laughs) And so I'm going to make one more point about Andrew and about Jim Elliott and about my brother. It's our privilege to love our Heavenly Father. It's our privilege to love our Heavenly Father. And when we come to this table and we drink this cup and eat this bread, there is no way that we can do this seeing His gift of His only begotten Son's blood and His flesh, His death, and then refuse to embrace and to love the difficult things God gives to us. And because Jaina and her husband Dan were willing to give themselves to God's perfect will, there were many, many years of joy for their son and for all of us. We all basked in the love of this couple for their, for their son. You saw the pictures at the funeral, those of you that were able to go, and you saw little uh, Austin (laughs) lying in bed with his brother, and they're both cuddling, you know, and they were probably what? How old? They were like seven or eight? Uh, Actually, Andrew was younger, but I would guess seven and nine or something like that. And they have these huge grins at each other. Where did that treasure and that wealth come from? Where has the fertile ministry of Elizabeth Elliot over the years come from? Did it come from her refusing to endure what God sent to her? No, it came from her saying to God, yes, I will take you and holiness over my husband, over the health of my son. I'll take it over anything. And so I ask you, as Stephen comes and serves us the Lord's Supper, the elders, as you eat and drink, Love the Father, because the Father Himself has led the way in giving up the things that were precious to Him, namely His only begotten Son. Let us worship the Lord.